I have often said or quoted a quote from A.W. Tozer where he said that the most important thing that a Christian can do is to think rightly about God. If you think rightly about God, it's going to manifest in how we act that out. But how can we think rightly about God if we don't know rightly about God? Because there's a lot of people who think wrongly about God because from their understanding, God is not good. God is mean and God is evil and, and so many other things. And so their thinking, their believing, their understanding is, is skewed. So our aim is to try to understand God better so that we can think rightly. And when we think rightly, we can apply it in a correct manner. Because see, it's real easy to go to any Bible study, any service, any prayer meeting, and going day in and day out, week after week, after month, after month, after year, and never gain anything. It's extremely possible for that to happen. But the desire is to go to any fellowship, any gathering, with the intention of becoming equipped and becoming edified. That's the whole job of the ecclesia. That's the whole job of congregating, of coming to fellowship on a Sunday, is equipping the saints and edifying them, encouraging them, teaching them, admonishing them. Uh, but if the hearer is not necessarily prepared for that, so in other words, if you don't put on your thinking hat, if you don't accept challenges, and if you don't challenge yourself once you leave from there, go to the scriptures and try to put everything together and say, yes, absolutely, this is what it says, or no, they're actually wrong, what I was being led to believe, then you just continue in what the Bible would call vanity. So it's real important. And so this morning, I would encourage you to put on your thinking cap. When we look at the Gospels, we see that Jesus would almost change modes. He had his disciples. He would sit them down. He would have times of preaching. But other times he would have times of teaching. You see the Apostle Paul doing the same thing. Uh, he would change his mode from preaching and then he would go to teaching and they would change it accordingly and I would say this morning not that I consider myself any kind of teacher right or great teacher at that manner I would say that today is going to be about teaching about learning about understanding about this man the God man Jesus Christ God in flesh and of course Pilate said behold the man he presented him as a man not just a regular man, but the God-man, God in flesh. And this is where we're going to have to put our thinking caps on, and we're going to have to be challenged, and we're going to have to open our hearts, broaden our hearts to the Scripture, so that we can see exactly what's going on here in this portion of, of Scripture and why it is important. Because it is of extreme importance to put those pieces together. Because we can know Him as God, but if we deny Him as man, then how can everything fit possibly, right? You're going to have a crack in your foundation, but you have to realize the whole purpose of Him being man. So, behold the man. Now, Jesus here clearly is the center of attention. Right? Every, all eyes are on Jesus. 
Now, it wasn't because of good intentions, but it was because of envy, hatred, and influence. Evil influence at that. That's why he was the center of attention. That's why everyone was there. They were, they were hissing at him. They were screaming. They were uh, upset. They were angry. It, it, was a, it was an outcry. It was a, a mob. And the majority of these people were the same ones who a week prior were screaming and shouting, Hosanna. Glory be to God in the highest. And now they're shouting, crucify him. These same majority of people who saw him do miraculous things and, and they're waving palm branches and they're seeing him on a donkey and they don't care that he's not on a donkey. They don't care that he's not riding in on a Cadillac or, or anything that's exquisite. He's on a donkey. He's humble. They're waving the palm branches and they are saying, Hosanna. Glory be to God in the highest. But now they're starting to see that, wait a minute, this God's not uh, becoming all who we thought he was. And, and he's not doing what we thought he was going to do. So now they're influenced because their thinking is being changed now. Wait a minute, maybe this God isn't who he puts himself out to be. So they're being influenced through evil influences now. And so now they're crying out and saying, crucify him. Get him out of the way. Kill him. Now it was Pilate who plainly stated, I find no fault in this man. I don't find no error. I have examined him. But yet Pilate still delivers him to punishment. I mean, how unrighteous is that? This, this man is innocent. He's done nothing wrong. But yet I'm going to send him off to be punished, to be scourged. Now, again, let's not lose track. This was prophesied. This had to happen, okay? But yet we still see the inconsistencies, okay? We're not trying to change history, but we're trying to see the error there. The error of whoever, whether it be a believer or non-believer. He said, I find no fault, but yet he still allows evil to take place. The same thing's happening with these Pharisees. They portray themselves as religious and, and loving and everything else, but yet they're plotting evil and bringing false accusation. I mean, that's like, can you imagine if you trust a doctor and he's going to give me heart surgery and he's going to make me well and, and, and you trust him, you confide in him, not knowing that right before they put you uh, under and they put you to sleep, he's in the next room snorting um, Snorting up drugs and drinking alcohol, and he's not even caring about what he does. He doesn't even wash his hands before he starts performing surgery. It's like, if I would have known that, I would have never followed. And so you want uh, to see responsibility there, but, but Pilate neglects this, and he says, I find no fault, but to please the Pharisees, because he was, he was fearful of what might happen. He was fearful about what might come against him. Then he said, I'm going to deliver him to be scourged. Now, we as individuals are influenced by many things in life. We can be influenced because of fear. We can be influenced because of doubt. We can be influenced because of good things. And so we want to be careful what we're influenced by. Definitely we want to be influenced by something good. But our children are influenced by things such as the phone. I mean, so many things that are influenced. And then it manifests. It shows. It turns into actions. 
Now, we have to keep in mind that those same influences also have consequences. And some of them are extremely severe. Proverbs chapter 24, verses 10 through 12, says, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? What this is saying is that in the day of trouble, in the day of distress or calamity or, or, or evil influence, if you become weak, what, what it means is if you withdraw, if you abandon your position, if you just relax and you don't do much about it, then your strength is limited. It actually becomes more trouble than good now. The strength that we think that we have. Now, God, the knower of all, he sees and gives and return accordingly. And this is important for us to understand because, see, we're responsible and we're going to be held responsible when we stand before God for the, everything that we did, everything that we said. But sometimes we don't acknowledge the fact that we're also going to be responsible for the things that we didn't say the things that we didn't do. Now, the Apostle James says that to any man who knows that which is right and he doesn't do it, then to that man it's accorded as sin. Women, child alike. If you know what's right and you don't do it, now sometimes we think, well, I mean, nobody else knows that this is happening, so I'm just going to kind of keep it hush because I don't want people to come against me. I don't want any backlash, so let me just kind of chill here and, and we won't ruffle any feathers. But it says that God will render to that person according to their deeds. I'll give you according to it. So a lot of times things that enter into our life, we also have to calculate in there, could this be a reason? Could this be a rendering according to my deeds? Could God be allowing to me according to that which I have been doing or I have not been doing? And this is real important because it'll help us to try to uh, uh, weed things out in our life because, see, it's not always just Satan that's just trying to come against us. Sometimes it's our own selves that are doing things, that are opening these doors and causing things. Now, hopefully at the end of this, we'll come to this because somebody might say, what does Proverbs 24 have to do with this? Well, it has a lot because uh, Pontius Pilate knows something that's right. He's not doing anything about it, not righteously. The Jews who were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, now they're saying crucify him, they as well. I'm sure there was a lot of people who were blind and now they could see and they're saying crucify him. Imagine that. God opened up their eyes, crucify him. Well, there's many who do that today. God has given them a revelation of who he is and they start coming to the Lord and only within a matter of time they begin to see that God's not who they thought he was because it's not benefiting them any longer. And so now they're evilly influenced by other things and in a sense they say crucify him. Crucify means get him out of the way. Destroy him. It doesn't matter anymore. So Pilate said, behold 
the man. I bring him out and I present him. And he says, behold, the man. Now, anytime the Bible says, behold. Basically, this is a flag and you should always see a flag that says, pay close attention here. Everything that proceeds after the word behold means that there is revelation there. I'm showing you something that is extremely important. And so he said, behold, the man. This is important who this is. Now, maybe Pilate didn't purposely do it, but the Holy Spirit of God purposely caused this to be written down, behold the man, because this is who he is. Pay attention to this revelation. Now we acknowledge him again as God, but what is the importance of knowing Jesus Christ as man? There is an extreme importance Okay, in theology, this is something that is known as, and it's a big word, right? It's called hypostatic union. You don't have to remember the word hypostatic union, but what it means is that God is, or Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. Both of them. He's not more one than the other. He is not simply one, but he is both. This is the hypostatic union. Now, this comes from a Greek word called hypostasis. That's where they get the word for hypostatic, okay? Theology has some some big words, right? But it's important to, to get to know what these things mean because, see, they start to put things together when you're thinking about God, when you're thinking about what's happening in your life, things that are playing out, things that are coming against you. You put the pieces of the puzzle together and you say, I understand what's happening now. And if you understand, then you can do something about it. Imagine if you never knew about aspirin and you had just a bad headache. Then you're just going to continue with that headache. But if you know that there's a product called aspirin or acetaminophen, then, you know, I can go take a couple of those and that will help here. And this is the same thing when it comes to the word of God. But this word hypostasis, it means that which has real existence. It has a firm foundation, so it's something real, it's something tangible. Now, hypostasis is in the Bible, but it's made up of two words. Hupo meaning under, and stasis, which means to make a stand or cause one to stand. Actually, I take that back. It's not stasis, it's histomai, which means to cause or to make Stand. Okay, you put those two things together under and cause to make one to stand. Well, the root word of hypostasis is where we get our word for cross. The cross, the cross where Jesus died at, is the cross that causes us to stand and we stand under that by faith. This is hypostasis. This is substance. This is real. This is something tangible. Now, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers, 
by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom man or through whom he also made the worlds, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. That was actually to verse 4. So it says that he spoke before time, Old Testament, through what? The prophets. That's how the Lord spoke to his people. Thus says the Lord. Listen to what God is saying. It says, but now he is speaking through who? His son, Jesus Christ. By means, now he's physically talking to the people. See, he had to become man. He had to become flesh, right? That's John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word was not a God, the Word was God. And He was there in the beginning, and then He came down and He tabernacled among us. He became flesh and He dwelt among us. So it says that in verse 3, that He is the brightness of His glory. He's the splendor of God. He is the light. Remember, he says, I am the light of the world. Those who believe in me, uh, they will no longer walk in darkness. And he is the express image. He is the expressed image of his person. Which person? God's person. This is actually where we get our word for character. He's the... Uh, it, and, and this word that's used for this character, it's an instrument used for carving or engraving or stamping. This is the image. He's the stamped image of God in human flesh. I mean, he's literally what we would call a spitting image. Right? We see children and say, oh, that's your son. Yeah, he's a spitting image of the father, of his father. Or this daughter is a spitting image of her mother. Well, he was a, a stamped form of the glory of God, of the character of God, of his person. And this is the hypostasis. He became a real human being. So he's the stamped image. How? By coming as a real human being. This is what uh, the writer is saying in Hebrews Chapter 1. Now Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, it's a popular scripture. Most of us know it by memory. Uh, even if we don't know where, uh, what the address to it is, we know what it says. Now, verse 1 of Hebrews 11 says that now faith is the, are you ready for this? Hupostasis. Faith is the hypostasis. It's something tangible. It's real. It has a foundation. Okay, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. And for it, for this faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. I mean, that's like big right there. 
a testimony. Uh, they, they were good witnesses for God. Why? Because of this faith, they obtained it. See, the more that we understand these things, our faith grows and we become better witnesses to the glory of God. And it says, by faith, we understand that the wor worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So our faith is in the reality of who Christ is as God-man and his work on the cross, what it stood for. It fulfilled the requirement for the forgiveness of sins. He had to become a man to be able to achieve what he did on the cross without that. Think about it like this. Could God have just snapped his fingers and fixed everything? He could have. God could snap his fingers right now and stop all the evil in this world. Somebody might say, well, why doesn't God do that? Wouldn't that be a good idea? What kind of God are you serving? We serve a God who gives us free will, and in that free will, we do as we choose, but remember, there's consequences to those things that we do. And because of that, there is evil out there. But see, God desires a people who say, I choose to submit to God. I choose to surrender to the Lord. I allow Him to lead me and to guide me as a shepherd does. And He leads me through green pastures. He causes me to lay beside still waters. What I shall not want, right? Why, what do I want anything else for? I'm good. God is leading me. So He had to become a man to be. So He came as a man, I mean, there's so many reasons one could list and just continue to go on and go on. Uh, he came a man so that he could endure the same things that we have endured, so that he can relate to us. But primarily, he had to fulfill the requirement for the forgiveness of sins. That is the law. The law required that something died and the blood had to be shed, right? We talked about that. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. It says, therefore, now previously it says that animal sacrifices, they're insufficient. It's not going to work. The animal, the blood, bulls and goats, it's not going to work. The animal sacrifices... It was only a type. It was only a shadow. It was only temporary. And verse 5 says, Therefore, when he came into the world, talking about Jesus, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, here we go again, Behold, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burn offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. And then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first 
that he may establish the second. Now, this is a quote out of Psalm chapter 40. This is a cry from King David, and he's, he's crying out for mercy. He's crying out for deliverance. He, he's in great need, but what David didn't even understand is that he was prophesying about the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the words that were prophesying of what was going to happen. But regardless, he's crying out for a deliverance. And, he, and here it says, a, a body you have prepared for me. This body is the body of who? Jesus Christ. Prepared him from the foundations of the earth. And he says, in the volume of the book, it's written of me. Which book? This book right here in the volume from Genesis to Revelation. It is written of who? Jesus Christ. And his number one thing, he said, Lord, I came to do your will. That's what I came for. Okay, that's important again. I said it before and I'll say it again because it, it doesn't go without saying. And many people will think that Jesus came just to help uh, financial statuses or, or this or that. But Jesus came one goal in mind to die on the cross to bring salvation to men and women and those who believe upon him. Now, does God fix financial statuses? Yes, He does. Absolutely. Absolutely. Does God restore relationships, marriages? Absolutely. Does God heal? Absolutely. But we have to know that His number one goal, and if He never, ever did, does any of those things, we glorify Him because He came and did what He had to do on the cross. That was the number one thing. And when we settle that in our souls and in our hearts, God, I, I'm praying for this, but if it doesn't happen, this happened already. The cross, and I, I stand by that cross. I stand, that's in the power of Christ. What he did there, that's how I'm able to stand. How can you stand through loss because of the cross? How can you stand through difficulties, through illness? How can you stand through hard times because of the cross? Because he stood I can stand. But without Christ, oh, I can't stand. And so that's why we understand this. So we've beheld the man. God the man. God in flesh. But let's behold a little bit further. It says that Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Chastised him. Whipped him. Now, a lot of you might have heard the demonstration of what happens here, but the, the Roman soldiers would use what's called flagellum, or some of it can call it the cat of nine tails. It's a whip with nine different strands on it. And they would switch them out, okay? The proclamation, according to Roman law, was when there was a death sentence, 40 lashes, because they believed that at 40 lashes, you killed the man. I mean, he was, he was going to be dead. So, because this wasn't a death sentence, it doesn't specifically say how much Jesus was sentenced to, but it is believed that it was, as Paul said for himself as well, 40 lashes minus one to make it 39. Because they wanted to make it severe enough. We don't want to kill them, but this has to be severe. we got to get our point across of this punishment. Now this cat of nine tail, uh, there were some who had a type of ball bearings at the end. 
little round rocks or, or whatever you would call them, and they would begin to whip the flesh to cause the skin to whelp up, to cause it to swell up so that they would move over to the next whip that had pieces of glass, pieces of bone, pieces of metal, and now the skin is nice and tender and it's plump so that we can get a good bite on it with our next whipping stage. So they would begin to whip. Now you think about 39 lashes, two of them. I mean, it is believed, theologians say, most men by this point, they, they would have died. They wouldn't have been able to handle it. But Jesus handled every single one. And another thing that I'll add in there is that it is said that these Roman soldiers, when it was a death sentence, they were trained in such a manner that you give 40 lashes, the man better die, because if he doesn't die, you're going to be the one that dies. So because of it, I better make sure and put it on them. And so this is the way that they were trained. So they didn't hold no mercy. They didn't hold back. We need to give them everything that's called for him. So imagine this. God the man, God coming in flesh. You gave up all of your rights in heaven. You gave up all your authority to come down for wicked sinners like us. People who are worthless so that you could endure that. I think I need to start listening a little bit better to when scripture is being taught, right? Because it's like, why? Why would he do that? The Bible says he did it for the joy that was set before him. The joy of seeing you and me coming to faith in him, adoring him and worshiping him. It was joy. That beating and whipping was joy. It baffles me, but God, I just can't demonstrate other than showing you that I love you. Because you would do that for me. When I blasphemed your name, when I was a hypocrite, when I did so many things opposite of what you expect. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. They scourged him, said that his skin would be hanging after each whip skin. The meat would be exposed. Now, it is also believed that he was unrecognizable when they were done with him. Imagine that. I mean, we see the movies, and I know that there's some in here who, I, I can't see that. I, I can't. I'm not going to watch that part because it's just too much. My wife is one of them. It's hard. But when you become his son or his daughter, you don't even have to watch it. But when you, when you read about it, and when you start sitting and meditating and thinking, it's like, he did, th he did that for me. He endured all of that for me. But yet I can't live a consistent life. I can't be loyal to the God who did all that for me. He counted it as joy. And I can't even count it as joy when I wake up tired in the mornings. To say, God, I woke up. I'm going to be joyful rather than upset. I mean, he was torn apart. He saves our soul, but yet it's not important for us to teach our children of this is the God who saves. And I'm going to teach you this is what he has done for your mother and father. And this is what he'll do to you. But son or daughter, you have to come to the point of your own belief in him. But how is he going to come to the belief? How is she going to come to the belief if we don't demonstrate that they don't see it? Because it's been said, I don't remember which pastor said it. Why would the children... Uh, of nowadays want the God of their parents that they don't even want. They don't even submit or follow Him. They don't submit to Him. 
then it begins to become personal. Because see, when we belong to him, our heart cries out, Abba, Father, Father. I know what I felt for my, my physical dad, but now this is my eternal dad, Abba. So now this is what, I mean, we get upset when somebody offended our, our, our carnal dad or they did them wrong and, they, and I'm holding it personal, but the father who saved my soul and I can't take it personal, I can't stand for him. I can't be all about him. I can let people blaspheme him. I can let people just make less of him. But I'm his son. I'm his daughter. Those who truly are, that's what begins to, to now it, it's inside of you. Now it's like I, that, that doesn't sit well. He received enough. Why are we allowing him to continue to be scourged in a sense spiritually because people make less of him? But they scourged him and he brought him out, beaten, ripped to pieces. He brings him out and Jesus is still standing. He's still standing. It doesn't say anything about him weeping. I'm sure that he wept. I'm sure that it, it, it hurt bad. But he still stands and they bring him out and he says, Behold the man, this is him right here. The humiliation. Imagine him looking into the crowd. and I remember that one right there last week was saying, Hosanna, waving the palm branch. How could you do that to me? That one over there doing the same thing, hissing at me. How? But I'm not going to let that stop me. I'm not going to let that distract me. I'm not going to give up because of that. And see, that has to be our same thing because with our calling, we can't give up because somebody does us wrong. We can't give up because somebody turns their back on us or, or something. Maybe they slander us or, or whatever. They betray us. No, we continue our mission in Christ. Why? Because we're not doing it for them. We're doing it for God. Then the soldiers, it says that they twisted a crown. A crown of thorns and they placed it on his head. And actually, backtracking just a little bit, just to show about this lashing, Isaiah chapter 53. We know this portion of Scripture. Again, most of us, this comes from the forbidden chapter that they don't even want to talk about in Israel, in Jerusalem. But this Isaiah chapter 3 verse 5 says that he was wounded for our transgressions. That means he was pierced for our rebellion. He was bruised for our iniquities. That means he was crushed for our depravity. Remember when he said, my soul is weary even to the point of death. He was being crushed because of what? Our depravity. He was, he was uh, then cha the chastisement for our peace was upon him. This scourging, this beating, it was upon him for our peace. How? Just so that we could have peace? No, it was through the salvation that comes from the cross. That was for us. That was the scourging. This, what just happened, was prophecy being fulfilled. Verse 5 of Isaiah 53, prophecy was being fulfilled there. 
So then the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and they placed it on his head. Have you ever wondered why a crown of thorns? Why didn't they just make something else? Why a crown of thorns? Because what I would like us to see this morning is the significance of this crown. Now, of course, kings wear crowns. And we know that he is the king. And he wears a different crown. Oh, there's coming a day when we're going to see him wearing a crown of glory, a crown of gold and jewels. But when he came the first time, he wore a crown, a crown of thorns for a certain reason. Thorns, thorns in the Bible, they signify suffering, trouble, affliction, right? It's not good. Who likes thorns? Rose bushes, they hurt. You try to grab them. Ouch. They're pointy. They bring hurt. They represent suffering, trouble, and affliction, but because of a result of sin. Okay? That's what sin brings. Thorn. Sin brings suffering and trouble and affliction. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Okay, Adam and Eve, they sinned in the garden. They fell. God shows up. Hey, how come you were hiding? Well, we were naked and we were afraid. Who told you you were naked and who told you you were afraid? He provided what? Skins, tunics to cover them. And now he's kind of uh, putting them in their place. Okay, now comes the consequence. He gives a, a, a judgment to the serpent. He gives a judgment to the woman. And in verse 13... Or verse 17 of Genesis chapter 3, he says to Adam, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Eat of what? The ground. Because you're going to work, you're going you're to sow things, and it's going to be difficult and it says, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the herb of the field. Thorns and thistles. This is a judgment. Why thorns and thistles? Because of sin. Because they transgressed. Because they fell. Now you're going to work hard. It's going to be difficult. And it's going to heed thorns and thistles. Now, our flesh... You, me, it's our flesh is made of what? The dust of the ground, right? Now, if this is the same ground that brings forth thorns and thistles, then our flesh, our carnality, also brings forth suffering and trouble, thorns and thistles through what? The sins that we commit. The same thing there. So this crown of thorns represents the suffering that we have endured as a result of our sins. But Jesus Christ wore it as a crown on his head to say, I'm going to take it upon me. We saw Barabbas last week, and he took our sins. He was guilty while we were set free. Those who believe upon him, I'm going to take your suffering upon me. I'm going to take all your transgression and your guilt upon me, and I'm going to wear it upon the head, which means authority. I have the authority to do this, to take it upon myself. You fast forward to Genesis chapter 22, and you'll see the picture hopefully a lot more clearly. 
Remember Genesis 22, Adam and Isaac, and they go up the mountain, and he's going to sacrifice his son. Isaac is carrying the, the wood for the, to, to burn the sacrifice on his back, the same way that Jesus carried the cross. They go all the way up there. He ties them up. He, he binds them. He gets ready to sacrifice them. Isaac says, well, I, I see everything prepared. I see the altar. I see the wood, but I don't see a sacrifice. And what did Abraham say? My son, the Lord will prepare himself a sacrifice. He'll provide for himself, Right? In verse 13, it says, as he was going to sacrifice him, that Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. You see this ram, you see this sacrifice that God provided. It was caught by the thicket, by its head, in the thorns. And you see a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ wearing this crown of thorns. Now, Jesus is not a ram, but Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the crown that he is wearing on his head. So it says that Abraham went and took the ram and he offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah Jireh. We know that one, right? The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide what? Snacks for Sunday school? No. He'll provide a, a front parking space after church when we go eat? No. The Lord is going to make a way for salvation to mankind. Again, God does provide so many beautiful, wonderful things, and we, we bless Him for that. But above all things, salvation. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So we see the picture of this crowns. Again, it was prophesied from when it happened. The Lord's going to provide for himself. Well, where, how? Well, turn, look, there's a ram. It's, got, it's stuck with its head in the thorns. And we see Christ. Back then, we, we look back and say, hey, that's, that's Jesus wearing a crown of thorns. Okay, great. The significance he took upon him. All of our sins, all of our iniquity, all of our transgressions. The result of sin, the sins of man were provided for on the cross by the Lamb who wore a crown of thorns. Amen? Amen. Then they placed him in a purple robe. Yeah, they were mocking him, making less of him. All hail, King of the Jews. Now we know that purple is the color for royalty. Royalty. But what could the significance be of this fabric and this color? Because everything in Scripture is very important and it plays a part. Exodus chapter 26, verse 31. See, sometimes we read and we can't just get our answer by reading. We have to do a little due diligence. I've got to scroll over to the Old Testament and then I've got to turn back over here and hold my place because I've got to put all these things together. That takes a little bit of work. Right? But it's easier sometimes to just say, hey Google or hey Alexa. Hebrews 11 says that God is a rewarder of who those who diligently seek Him. 
Okay, we got to be like, like crime investigators. We have to set up little flags here and, and evidence here and evidence there. And you put it all together and you come to a conclusion. This is exactly what all of this means. Exodus chapter 26, verse 31. God is giving Moses the construction of the tabernacle. This is how I want all of this to be played out. Everything, the way you lay it out, I'm telling you how to do it. And in verse 31, he says, you shall, this is in the, in the uh, temple, you shall make a veil, or tabernacle at that time. You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread. This is the veil that was in between God's presence, the t tabernacle, and it separated the priests from them. It was to be made in red, blue, and purple. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. So you have the blue. The blue that is said to represent the sky. Right? The sky is beautifully blue. Psalm chapter 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Blue, you equate that. That's, that's God, that's deity. And the red, on the other hand, on the other side, is said to symbolize the sins of men. Uh, some, translation, some translations will say scarlet. But remember, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, the Lord says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Red, the sins of man. Blue, the presence of God. And what happens when you mix blue and red? In the middle you have purple. Purple that represents a deity, means that he is God, not just man. And so we see there that the fabric placed on Christ signifies the meaning of the temple veil. And what did that veil do again? It separated the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, because if you went in there, guess what? You're dropping dead that fast. That's why they would tie the bells on the high priest and tie a rope. Because if I don't hear that bell ringing, I'm pulling you out. I'm not going to go in there because then I'll be dead too. So if the high priest was not right with God, he was going to drop dead. So this veil was a, a protection to protect people. Now there stood Jesus. Beaten and broken with this robe, as it were, a veil. And he was standing as a mediator. Because that veil was a mediator. I'm not going to let you go because you'll die. But you do need to get there so only certain people could. But Jesus died. He wore that veil. He was broken for the sins. And then when he did that, now we have access, every single one of us, to come straight before God. We don't need a priest anymore because the Bible says that now we are kings and priests. But do we want to wear a crown of gold right now? 
or do we want to wear a crown of thorns? Oh, we're going to have a crown of gold. It's coming. It's coming. And wait in anticipation. And, and, and we're going to wear purple, but it's going to come in anticipation. But for now, Jesus merged that. He is the mediator. And if you uh, remember Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, verse uh, 51, all the way to 54. It says, Then behold... The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Man, imagine the, imagine all the, 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 the things going on. Jesus was just crucified, and there was an earthquake. It had just been dark in the middle of the day, and the earth just quaked. And now, hey, they were dead. What are they doing up? They rose up. They came out of the graves after His resurrection. They went out into the holy city, and they appeared to many. They made it known. This God is real. How did you get here? Jesus right there. I believed and I trusted in Him. It's nothing that I did. It was Him. Put your eyes on Him. Don't put your eyes on me. And when that happened, it says that the centurion who was with them, the centurion, the Roman guard who was right there, he was guarding Jesus and he saw the earthquake and the things that happened. He saw everything. This was a Roman guard. This was an unbeliever. And what does it say? That he feared greatly. And he said what? Truly, this is the Son of God. The Son of God referring to what? The humanity of Jesus. This was a man that is God. Truly, we made a big mistake. Which you and I know that it wasn't a mistake because it was something that God had already ordained to happen, for something greater happening. It said that He became the first to make us the second. The people, the, the first fruits of His sonship. Now we're born again. It's His complete, complete human nature. This is only partial of why it's important to know the human nature of God. He was fully man. Fully man. He cried as a baby. He soiled his diaper. He probably came down with viruses or stomach aches or headaches. And, and he grew up and he, he ate as we did. And he drank and he experienced poverty. As a matter of fact, in those times, there was three levels of poverty. And Jesus was considered to be at the lowest level, which everyone considered scum. That's our God. Is that something bad to say about Jesus? No, I think it just proves the humility of who he was. Oh yeah, I can ride in on a horse, but I'll ride in on a donkey. Oh, I, I could have my God, have my people to crown me with the crown of gold right now and, and, and jewels, but I'm going to wear a crown of thorns. The time is coming because see, there's long suffering in all of this. And today there's many who can choose and say, no, I need a, I need a crown of gold. Don't you know who I am? I'm a, I'm a preacher. I'm a reverend. 
I need the best seat and I need a crown and don't let too many people get close to me. Let them go through this person and, 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 and whatsoever. Or, or do you know I expect? I saw someone uh, say that they received, uh, they were really excited because they felt they had the favor of God because they got a good parking space. And I mean, praise God if, if that's what it was. But you know what the favor of God is? The favor is God, of God is Him looking down upon you and being pleased and, and choosing to call us son or daughter. That's the favor of God. Not the little petty things. As a matter of fact, it could probably do us all good to park way out there and walk the rest of the way in, right? We need it. We need exercise. We, see, we're becoming more and more lazy, but it's not just physically, spiritually, it's also becoming lazy. Because we need a people who needs to be convicted of the reality and the truth of this word. God died for me and God died for this word. Then I'm going to preach the word. And I don't care who gets offended. I don't care who gets hurt. But what I do care about is that God is glorified in it. Because that is the most important thing. If he saved my soul, right? I mean, if he, if he does for me, which he does. He woke us up this morning. He has us here. Then we're going to glorify God. And if that's not our viewpoint, then it's time for an examination. Are you in the faith? Because that's the whole reality of it. Because knowing God should mean that at some point or another, there is a manifestation of weeping. This God, this God. He created the worlds. He's so brilliant. He saved my soul. He did that. How can I not love this God? How can I not pursue him? How can I not be loyal to him? Because in today, there's so much inconsistency in the body of Christ. And there's so much of a lack of accountability by shepherds to keep the flock accountable. Why? When? Where? How? No, I'm not trying to run your life, but I'm trying to guide your soul into everlasting salvation. That's what I'm, I'm trying to care for you. I'm not trying to lord anything over you. We need to be careful who we listen to. We need to be careful what we watch. We have to guard our souls because eternity depends on it. The image of Christ, He is the express image of God. He has the character. What are we today? Let it be our desire that it is the express image of the Son of God. Yeah, we're going to fail, but we aim to be pleasing to Him and I'm going to have to probably finish next week with a part two because I'm not even close to what all of this entails here. But we have beheld the man, God, the man. The sacrifice that was prophesied of from the beginning of the world, the image we saw caught in the thickets, he came he wore that thorn. Why? To shed his blood. The blood of Jesus. There is power in the blood of Jesus. The blood of the Lamb. We have to know that. And it's not sprinkled on doorposts no more. Okay? It's greater than anointing our doorposts with oil. But it's sprinkled on our hearts. It washes us. And that blood does not stain us. It cleanses us. It makes us white as snow. It takes the guilt away. I'm not ashamed no more of who I used to be. I'm not ashamed of what I used to say. Why? 
Why? Because I've been redeemed. I've been cleansed. You, you, you might see me as the old person that I was, but when the Lord Jesus sees me, he sees me in righteousness. That's who we are. That's who you are. That's who we are. And it causes us to walk with our chins up in the air, not in arrogance, but in confidence saying, I know who I believed in. I'm a son and I'm a daughter of God. I don't have to be defeated. I don't have to walk around with my knees feeble and my arms hanging low, but I can walk with them lifted high. Why? Jesus Christ saved my soul. Let's pray. Father, God, it's wonderful. God, it's beautiful to read your word, to go deep, to put all the pieces together, God, to, to look back and see that there's a picture of you wearing the crown of thorns thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. And as a matter of fact, Abraham saw that promise. And Hebrews goes on to tell us that he saw the promise afar off. He continued to believe and he died not having yet seen it. God, give us the endurance that we would not give up, that we would not slow down, but that we could run our race with agility and with speed, seeing, uh, God, we know you came already, God, but you're coming again, Lord. And there's some days that our soul says, just come now, God, just come now, God. I don't even look to the pleasures of this life, but just come now, God. Just come now. God, we need you on this earth. We need you. Your people need you, God. People who are lost need you, God. And God, if we try as hard as we can, we still can't save people, but you can. So we ask you, God, use us, Lord. Cleanse us, Lord. Bring greater convictions upon our souls so that we can be great and mighty people of God. Become realer every day to us, Lord. What are we doing this for? Father, we cry out to you, Lord. I'm just a man who's attempting to relay your word to others, God. But I look to you. I depend on you to cause it to become real and living and to beat in our hearts, God. Only you can do that, Father. That's the only way that you will receive glory. That's the only way, God, that we will submit and become a loyal people, God cause us to become people of the truth who listen to your voice and none other God that we would recognize that which is not real and we would turn away from it God God empower us Father fill us with the power and the might of your Holy Spirit that we would know that by your precious and mighty blood we have been cleansed God we don't have to be like the dogs that return to their own vomit we don't have to go back and wallow in the mire and the mud but God we are righteous people because of what you did God God engrave that in our souls that, would be, that it would be indelible that it would be stamped so that we can be now the image of who you are God. Father, we thank you, Lord. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.